Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Tuesday, November 9th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a data-driven look at COVID vaccine misinformation. Then, twin crises bear down on small business owners in the state. And new guidance aims to help younger people avoid colorectal cancer. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi's COVID-19 vaccination rate has picked up in recent months, but the state is still one of the least vaccinated per capita in the country, stuck at the back of the pack alongside West Virginia, Idaho, Wyoming, and Alabama. Currently, only a little more than 50% of Mississippians have received at least one dose of either the Pfizer, Moderna, or Johnson & Johnson shot. Yesterday, data nonprofit the Kaiser Family Foundation release new research that sheds light on why many Americans remain hesitant to receive a vaccine. Liz Hamill is the organization's director of public opinion and survey research. We've been doing nationally representative surveys of the U.S. public about the COVID-19 vaccine since December of 2020, and we've been conducting those monthly to track people's attitudes um, and intentions about the vaccines and also tracking other topics, including misinformation. We hear that social media is a source for misinformation. Is that primarily where people are getting their information or their misinformation in this case? Were you able to identify that? So we did not track in this survey where people got the information that they heard. We did track what sources they trusted for information on COVID-19. And when we ask the question that way, we find that actually most people do not trust social media as a source of information. People are much more likely to say that they trust sources like traditional news sources, so their local TV news station or network news, as well as some of the, um, the cable news outlets and NPR. There certainly has been a distrust that has mounted in recent years about the media, about the news media. From what you just said, it doesn't seem like that is the case if people are getting their news from news agencies. Well, I should say that relative to social media, people do trust news agencies more for information on COVID-19, but still 
we do see what you mentioned, that there, there has been an erosion of trust in all sorts of information sources over time. What misinformation is most commonly believed? So we tested eight different statements that are misconceptions or direct misinformation about COVID-19. And the one that was either believed or that the, the largest number of people either believed or were uncertain about was that the government is exaggerating the number of COVID-19 deaths by counting deaths due to other causes as COVID deaths. Uh, we found that almost four in 10 people said they had heard that and they believed it was true. And another two in 10 said they had heard it and they weren't sure if it was true or false. What else uh, are at the top of that list? Yeah, we also found that uh, a fair number of people either believed or were unsure of other misconceptions, such as pregnant women should not get the COVID-19 vaccine. That was about 17% said they believed that was true and another 22% weren't sure. Also, uh, another misconception about deaths uh, was that the deaths due to the COVID-19 vaccine were being intentionally hidden by the government. Almost one in five said they believed that was true, and another 17% said they weren't sure if it was true or not. When you get to the bottom of that list of the eight, they're pretty wild. Vaccines can change your DNA, and that getting yeah. a vaccine means you're getting a microchip inserted. Yes, we have found those to be persistent myths. Um, you know, as well as the idea that the vaccines can give you COVID um, or that they contain a microchip or that they can change your DNA. To some of us, these sound like wild claims, but we actually find a fair number of people either believe that these things are true or they've heard them and they're just not sure if they're true or not. You have some graphs and it's interesting because you have it broken down by party affiliation, by age, by education. And there are similarities where you might think that this falls along political lines. Let me say, first of all, you have whether someone believes uh, one to three of those statements that you mentioned or more than that. And in that category of do you believe one to three of them, there's an equal number or percentage between people who are vaccinated, people who are not vaccinated people who belong to the Democratic Party versus Republicans and down the line. How do you explain that? Well, I think it is true that people across the spectrum tend to believe or be uncertain about at least one of these pieces of misinformation. We know that science has been evolving rapidly. There's a lot of information in the news all the time. People have trouble keeping track of it. Um, but where we see the, the big differentiator is in how many people said they believed or were unsure about at least half of the statements that we tested. And that's where we see, um, you know, differences along partisan lines. So Republicans are much more likely than Democrats to believe or be uncertain about at least half of those pieces of information. Um, and then the biggest divider was between unvaccinated and vaccinated adults. Um, so almost two-thirds of unvaccinated adults believed or were uncertain about half of the, the false statements that we tested, and that was compared to only 19% of vaccinated adults. Is it fair to say that this is divided down party lines? I think it's fair to say that a lot of things about um, COVID-19 have been divided along party lines. Um, and that's not to say, um, you know, it's black and white, um, but we definitely see 
gradations of, you know, how much misinformation people believe, also people's willingness to get the vaccine. Um, We see that partisanship is a big predictor of many attitudes about the pandemic. What are the biggest conclusions that you've drawn that you think our listeners should know? Well, I think, first of all, that um, many people do believe in misinformation, that that there is a lot of information out there that is either um, confusing to people or that is that is false that people are believing and that people still have a need for good, straightforward, factual information about COVID and the vaccine. Liz Hamill is the vice president and director of public opinion and survey research for the Kaiser Family Foundation. Liz, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Coming up, the global supply chain is a mess, and Mississippi's labor market is threadbare. For small business owners, it's an ugly combination. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Public health experts warn the state may experience a twin-demic over the next few months, in which COVID-19 intertwines with the flu for an especially nasty season of coughing and sneezing. Mississippi's economy is also staring down twin crises, a shaky supply chain and a labor shortage, both of which threaten to wipe out small businesses already rocked by a rough 2020. Charles Frazier is the owner of Weidman's Restaurant in Meridian. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier, no relation, that profits remain elusive even now almost two years into the pandemic. Well, there's so much kind of economic upheaval, whether that's uh, through supply chains, uh, you know, availability of items, pricing, everything like that. And a lot of that is indirectly related to the pandemic or some of it directly related to. But certainly there's been a labor shortage um, and labor is one of those commodities that is going up in price. Uh, In other words, we're having to pay everybody a lot more, but also with our supply of products, it's been a challenge to get certain items on the table, um, you know, whether it's pork, chicken, beef, and, and it kind of varies week to week. So that's that's also been a challenge as far as uh, planning that out and adjusting menus accordingly and things of that nature. But, of course, the, the disruption of the pandemic itself last year when we were shut down to a kind of a takeout model only takeout and delivery, that altered everything for really about six weeks um, and certainly, uh, you know, sent our – our sales figures south, um, as I'm sure it did with everybody. But we've also seen a resurgence. So on the flip side of that, you know, I, I think our revenue is at the highest it's ever been. We are busier than we've ever been, although our margins are smaller due to the labor, the increased cost of labor, and also the increased cost of goods. How do you balance? How do you plan a menu when you don't know <laughs> what you're going to have? Well, uh, you know, we have a very big menu here at Weidman's, uh, and so it gives us the luxury of still having a lot of items available, even though we may be out of certain things. And the, and the public, the community has been very forgiving and understanding of our, the challenges that we're facing. I think that they see the same things at the grocery store. They're looking for bread, toilet paper, you know, anything. It, it, I mean, it varies week to week in the grocery store as well, what's available. And so uh, they can relate to our problems, they understand that, and, and as I said, they've been forgiving and, at least now, patient. 
I don't know uh, if their patience is wearing thin or how much longer that will last. But uh, for the time being, it's it's you know the public has been very supportive and understanding. In terms of you said you have uh, a lot of folks coming in, do you have <laughs> enough staff to do what you need done? We've been blessed. Uh, we've m- retained a lot of our staff. Um, we've had we've lost some through attrition. A lot of kids work in restaurants and they go off to college, things of that nature. Um, and we haven't been able to replace them at the same rate that we usually are able to. So that's been certainly one of our challenges is replacing that staff that we lose to attrition. But I think that we are seeing some leave. Um, as I said, labor is kind of a commodity and and. Uh, there are a lot of other businesses that are paying more now. They recognize that as well. And so, you know, unfortunately, our margins kind of dictate what we can afford to pay and still remain profitable. And so we are somewhat limited in, in the amount of increases that we can offer our employees. So we have lost some that way, but we have been fortunate, as I said, in in just retaining the staff that we've had for years. Um, that That's part of, I, I guess, being in business for as long as we have. Would you mind sharing with me how much you've had to go up on salaries to hire folks or keep them? It it really depends on the position. Um, certainly a dollar or two here and there. Um, we've also have a bonus structure, um, which we do for the back of the house. So any hourly employee that's not a, a tipped employee is eligible for our profit sharing. Um, and so we've been very mindful of distributing those funds as well. And that's an added sort of bonus. We've we've always done that anyway, um, but certainly we've increased that a little bit as well, just to to maintain some of the staff. So really, it's a probably two dollars on average per uh, staff member, but that varies based on you know years of experience, um, the job that they're performing, and that sort of thing. And would you say that you're a high end restaurant? I would, yes. Um, fine dining, high end. Do they have to be vaccinated? No, we don't require vaccination. Certainly, I encourage everybody, especially those in the front of the house that are interacting with a lot of the public. But I think that that's sort of, I don't, I don't want to mandate that. Um, but as I said, encourage that, as I do with flu shots every year. Um, I encourage the staff to get those as well. Anything that I didn't ask you that's important to mention about this issue? I think that certainly we're heading in the right direction. We certainly need to get a handle on prices. And, and uh, if we can kind of halt that inflation or at least stem it, then uh, that would enable, I think, everybody to to recoup and, and move forward. But beyond that, I think that uh, I think a lot of restaurants are, are glad that we seem to be over the worst of the pandemic part of it. Now we're just kind of uh, dealing with the the aftermath. Charles Fraser owns Weidman's Restaurant in Meridian. Coming up, why people as young as 45 should be screened for colorectal cancer. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
The U.S. Preventative Services Task Force now advises that all Americans over the age of 45 be screened for colorectal cancer. That recommendation is especially significant in a state like Mississippi, whose residents are disproportionately likely to suffer from pre-existing conditions like obesity that up the odds of developing the disease. African Americans, who make up about 40 percent of Mississippi's population, are also more likely than people of other races to get colorectal cancer. Dr. Eric Plott is a gastroenterologist at Singing River Health System in Gulfport. He speaks with MPB's Kobe Vance. Mississippi generally has been underrepresented in terms of screenings for various diseases, but colon cancer specifically, um, we are behind the national average in terms of the, the number of people and the percentage of people who get screening. What we want to do is screen everyone who is now uh, uh, 45 years old. I say now because that recommendation has been changed fairly recently. So anyone 45 and above, even if you're feeling fine, even if you're having no issues whatsoever, we want to do colorectal cancer screening because, generally speaking, a person's lifetime risk for colon cancer is around 4%, 4.5%. And all you have to do to accumulate that risk is be a human being over about 45. So it's really, really important that we do colon cancer screening. What was the age recommendation before they changed it? Uh, 50, and it's been 50 for, for quite a number of years, starting maybe seven or eight years ago, began to be noticed that, that young, we were seeing colon cancer in folks that are younger and younger. So we're seeing less cancer in older patients because um, generally we're doing a better job at getting people to come in for screening. But we started seeing more and more cancer in younger and younger populations down into their 40s. So about seven or eight years ago, there was an initial recommendation that we should look, particularly at African-Americans, starting at 45, and then over the the succeeding years, culminating most recently in in May of this year, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force uh, issued a recommendation, a final and sort of full recommendation that every adult or every person over 45 should be screened. Now, when somebody comes in for a screening, could you walk us through the process of what that looks like? Sure, it depends on where you go, but at our facility, uh, you will either come in to, either you'll be referred in by your primary care provider or you can just call us directly um, in the digestive services here at, at, uh, at Singing River, at any of the Singing River hospitals, and we'll get you in, do an interview, a medical interview, talk with you about your family history and your risk factors for colon cancer, and then we'll arrange a, a screening regimen for you. Most often, that's going to be colonoscopy. But there are other screening things that you can do. You can do blood testing or other testing on the stool. You can do uh, so-called short scope or flexible sigmoidoscopy, which is something short of a full colonoscopy. There's even a radiology or a CT-based screening that's within the recommendations but is not done very often. What options are available if somebody uh, gets a screening and finds they do have some form of Precancer or cancer? So most often with these precancerous lesions, it'll be removed right there at the time. So uh, another useful thing about colonoscopy as a screening method is that when we find it, we can treat it right there on the spot. We can remove it. If there are very large lesions or if there are actual cancerous lesions, the treatment's going to depend very much on what on staging. And, and uh, probably most of us have heard at one time or another this person or this relative had stage three cancer or stage four cancer or something like that. 
that has to do with the size of the lesion, whether it's invasive in one part of the body or another, whether it's spread to one part of the body or, or another or, or not. Um, and, and that treatment regimen often will come down to a visit with a surgeon and a visit with a cancer doctor and oncologist. Uh, sometimes will involve surgery. Sometimes will involve chemotherapy. Sometimes will involve radiation therapy or some combination of those. The most important thing about that statement is that most of the time when we're doing screening, we're going to find precancerous polyps, not cancer. And of course, that's the goal. And if we can do that, then all of that surgery is prevented, chemotherapy is prevented, radiation is prevented. If a cancer is gone undiagnosed and by extension is gone untreated, what could happen down the line if somebody does not have that identified? Another of the things that we say about colon cancer is the most common symptom is nothing. I feel fine, right? So, again, another reason to understand that that we need to do screening ahead of time, even if you're feeling okay. When you get to later stage colon cancers, stage 3 and stage 4 cancers, typically you can get obstruction of the, the colon so food and material won't move through anymore. You'll get swelling and even malignant perforation, that is to say, you can develop uh, holes and leakage and so on in the colon. And, of course, it can spread to surrounding organs, and, and, well, it's a mess. Is there anything else you'd like to share with Mississippians about the importance of colorectal screenings, especially as we you mentioned earlier, there's been a, a rise in the number of cases in people that are younger? Yeah, so so the most important thing is, is you, you please talk to your doctor about colon cancer screening, and not just colon cancer, but other cancer screenings as well. The screening regimen is easy. It's covered by most insurances, uh, even uh, Medicare and Medicaid and all of the the government uh, insurance carriers uh, and and most commercial carriers. It is, it's not a painful thing to get done, though it, you know, it seems uh, distasteful when, you know, when you think about it. One of the things that really concerns people is that, uh, you know, nobody's going to do that to me sort of a thing. Um, but please talk to your doctor about it. Let them explain to you uh, what exactly it is and what you can expect. Even if you don't do colonoscopy, there are other things you can do to screen for colon cancer. It's so important that you do something to screen. And whenever you do get a colonoscopy, could you clarify what that looks like for people who might have a, a different idea about, you know, through the media or that they've seen on TV or such like that, what it actually is like? Sure. The, the the actual exam itself is uh, is is just a, a nap. You you come in. Uh, we give you some medicine to allow you to sleep, and then once you're asleep, we'll use a, a scope, it's just a tube, uh, about a yard and a half long, with a light and a camera chip on it, uh, and you pass that into the rectum and look at the full colon. But again, you don't experience that. You're asleep. Um, people often talk and, and, you know, there's been lots of comedy routines about the bowel prep, uh, ahead of time. And it's true that it, that it does take, uh, some effort to clean out the gut, but there's a lot we can do to make that a good deal more tolerable as well. And, uh, it's a small, small price to pay to never have to deal with colon cancer. Dr. Eric Plott is a gastroenterologist at Singing River Health System. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. 
I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.